This is a Federal News Network podcast. Welcome to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Network. Now your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Matthew Schalbetter, the Director of Security Design and Innovation at the Department of Health and Human Services. Matthew, welcome to the program. Yeah, thank you. I want to start off with just asking you the, the very basic question. As Director of Security Design and Innovation, what is it that you do? How do you fit into the larger role at HHS with its CIO and, and Chief Information Security Officer? For the longest time, I was, I was directly under the CISO role at, at HHS at the department level. And primarily our tasks were coordinating with the optives, being an advocate for the operating divisions um, at the department level, primarily looking to figure out where they were having trouble, where they were, where they were solving problems, and identifying where we could sort of coalesce and standardize on, on products. And, you know, it's, it, one level, it's, it's really a, a lot about communicating with um, the experts and the leadership in FDA and CDC and NIH, but, um, you know, it's not a high-risk job. I tried to pair um, what I was doing to the easy solutions, the easy decisions, the big products that everybody's using and try to save money there and balance that out with uh, injecting some some new and innovative tools. And that's where the innovation piece came in. So I spent a lot of time in, in two areas, talking internally to engineers and CISOs and with the industry, trying to figure out what they were doing and how they were solving problems and, and who was trying to disrupt things and, and pull those two together. And a lot of that ended up in in the context of technical exchanges, conferences, things like that, both internally and, and visiting externally and a lot of the the usual sort of suspects the rsas and and um some of the the, the um investment groups um that are common in dc but just trying to drive that information and be a resource for for the optives and, and help leadership make decisions uh, more quickly around when we can shift to specific products and so i think for example some of the easier things were the Palo Alto decision that we made, the Splunk decision that we made, FireEye decisions that we made. A lot of, a lot of high dollar, not going to lose your job, um, but very effective products mixed with some other solutions that were sort of different and innovative. So I think that's where I play. Now I've, I've switch, switched up into a, a broader portfolio, including applications and cloud-based solutions and, and taken that same approach and tried to expand a little bit. So my job really is, is trying to drive some standardization I kind of live between the architecture and the operations group and, and help us decide direction for the department. Now, interesting, you, you said you play in two areas. You play in both the internal, dealing with the FDA, the NIH, and folks like that, but you also are dealing with industry as well. And then you try to kind of marry that all together. Walk me through the internal piece first, because there's a lot of federation across HHS. That's one thing we've heard time and again, is that HHS is so federated, it's really kind of a job of herding a lot of cats in many ways. It is, and I think, you know, it's it's really a funding funding discussion. I think the I've heard from the CIOs in the operating divisions often. It's always a surprising stat. I think they they commonly say they they have access to or control over twenty percent of their own budget, their own IT budget. A lot of money tied up in programmatic spend, important mission relating spend. But um, it's even within the um, operating divisions, uh, they're federated as well. So a lot of the activity is really coalescing on a good idea, um, which is why the, the bigger products seem to make a splash. The department does have access to funding sources. A lot of our solution has really been getting the 
CISO leadership together, getting the CIO leadership together. I mean, both of those teams meet uh, on a monthly basis, talk regularly. And so we align around common problems. The GAO audits have been, you know, an enormous impact on our um, activity and, and they're hitting all of our big operating divisions. And so those kinds of pressures tend to bring the CIOs and the CISOs together. They have a lot of the same challenges, even though we have very, very different missions. I mean, we're, we're still trying to solve the same problems and still have some of the same internal problems. And so there's a lot to bring us together. There's a lot of challenges to overcome. And I think that where we've really made successful movements in this area has been sort of the culmination of two activities. One is driving some of those discussions into those groups getting them to say where their problems really lie and how the department can shoulder some of those burdens, take on some of those burdens and, and get them up front to agree to, to commit to some of that activity. It always helps that we have a source of funding that we can, we can apply from the department level. But even we do that, if we don't, if we don't choose the right solution and don't staff and support it well, uh, if we don't execute well, um, the optives will just sort of, do what they need to do. Like they have their own mission. So there's no secret sauce there. We historically had some benefit with some long, long live CIOs, long live CISOs. I think there's been, you know, recent, recent, quite a few changes, but, but there's enough stability, I think within the organization and, and enough consistency that we've been able to drive at some good solutions across the board. Now, I know just from working with your folks at HHS over the years, the, the CIO, it's, it's always been that, that job of, okay, how do we bring people together? How do we communicate? How do we continue to, okay, HHS at large has this problem, but how does that apply to NIH or CDC or FDA? So, and then those CIOs have to get on board. So it's good to hear, as you said, you're meeting at least monthly, you're talking all the time. So that's obviously a good step in that direction. Let's shift to the external side and the industry side. And, and I know this is not about which product you use or which, which, who's better than who, which, but walk me through your role in terms of working with industry, talking to them, learning what they have and how that could apply to HHS and, and the uh, and operating divisions. On the largest end of the funnel, I stay in contact with a number of venture capital groups to see who's coming up with new solutions in different areas. So I have a... Essentially, I try to filter it based on the priorities, whether it's URL filtering, better better perimeter controls. We've been spending a lot of time on just endpoint solutions and, and cloud solutions lately. We've sh shifted to zero trust. So I've got some big filters that I'm looking at. Obviously, when, when DHS comes along and we have binding operational directives, we've, we've been kind of in front of those because of talking to the VC groups, um, just in terms of understanding what's coming down the pike. So usually what I'm looking for there are, if say endpoint protection is a, is a big issue, what are the smaller companies? What are the startups? What are they investing in and what are they seeing? So you know, we'll spend a week out in California just getting their pitches to see how they're solving problems. Because I typically what I find is, if there's an issue that one of the larger, more well-known product vendors haven't really addressed well, they start to appear in the VC. They start to appear in the small companies because, you know, these companies, they start up from people who are 
in a similar situation from us that, that see a problem, ha- haven't quite found the solution in the marketplace or so trying to figure out a better way to do it. doesn't mean we always go there. <laughs> it doesn't mean we always decide to pivot into something small, but it certainly means we take that problem and, and push it at our current vendors. And so we, we try to, I try to balance with doing pilots of, of new and small product suites to just saying, hey, you know, here is, I've heard this, this is something that, that I see the industry um, solving. I, I don't see our current vendors uh, helping us solve it in this way and really pressuring them to try to come to solutions. Now, frankly, a lot of that means some of those smaller vendors just get bought up by our current vendor set, but that's just the way the market goes. And that's, that's what happens often. Uh, but in some situations, you'll, the, you know, our current vendors will actually pivot and, and create new solutions of, for the market in general. I can't say that, it, you know, I'm doing it, but, but I'm certainly a voice uh, trying to, to feed them some of those, so, some of those issues. Um, so I think that's the biggest impact. And then there's a, there's a community, just like a community of CISOs or CIOs, there's a community of, of folks who are interested in what's coming down the pike and, and how to bring that into HHS. So often um, we'll be together at, at um, RSA, we'll be together at California, we'll be together on meetings in, in DC when we could actually attend meetings in person and use that time uh, to both learn and, and share internally about what's what's happening, where the pressures are at FDA, where the pressures are at CDC or CMS and, and, and stay together on what's coming down the pike and, and try to feed that back into the CISO discussions. And so, and where appropriate, I try to pull in, you know, the, the CIOs and CISOs um, to some of those meetings as well, because that's, that's where, that's where it's valuable. So I think I use it to try to push the, um, you know, or other or current vendors and pressure them. And then I also use it as just a, a resource for educating internally where the market is going and, and provide that intel to the, the CIOs and CISOs. Matthew, on that note, let's take a quick break. My guest today is Matthew Schalbetter, the Director of Security Design and Innovation at the Department of Health and Human Services. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Matthew Schalbetter, the Director of Security Design and Innovation at the Department of Health and Human Services. Kind of refreshing to hear that you are taking the effort to not just meet with the usual suspects. And, And there's nothing wrong with the usual suspects. You know, I know one former federal CIO Vivek Kundra called it a cabal or, or a, a, he had a very negative uh, tone to the quote unquote government contractor group. But uh, I, I think they all have their place and it's important, but it's, 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 I think, duly important for people like yourself to go seek out those smaller companies. And so I'm going to put you on the spot. And if you don't have a good answer, totally fine. Uh, have you bought or piloted or tested any of those products from those smaller companies or, or that, that are connected to a VC where you kind of went out just on a fact-finding mission and came back and said, wow, we, we should try that or we should, we should see how that works. Have you had a good experience in there? And you don't have to be specific to the product, but if you just kind of even just generally. Yeah, we actually have. Um, we, we've had both. <laughs> I mean, we spent six months a couple of years ago trying to pilot a couple, you know, browser virtualization products on the platform. They were on platform products and they just, we got an F. <laughs> it just didn't work. It was, it was too complicated, too heavy. Um, but we tried it and we, we got everybody involved pushing on it. So we learned a lot. We learned we don't want to do that again. And that, that helped us pivot to 
some new capabilities we've been we've been pushing i've been pushing browser virtualization i think disa beat me to it <laughs> good for them but you know those are the kinds of things that i think are now coming to the fore and have solved some of those problems i think around the dmark products we had been testing um, those solutions internally for a while before DHS pushed their binding operational directive and, and had already proved the value and was already, we were already pivoting to, to buy that up, particularly around healthcare.gov and, and some of the um, more well-known domains that were just getting, getting spoofed every year. And we were able to see, at least for that particular implementation, um, I think we, we had tested, began testing a couple of products in March. I think we had a run of three different products. We chose one and then CMS was able to pivot right before the uh, marketplace opened up. And, and that year was the first year that we didn't have, we had zero spoofing against healthcare domain. I think we just scared them off um, completely um, just because they had been prepped, we had been prepped and, and we were ready. So we've had successes, we've had failures, but that's sort of, that's, that's sort of the way we, the way we win. And honestly, what will end up happening is, is I don't always do the implementation. I don't always do the piloting. You know, CDC has done some great work in terms of um, this year pivoting to uh, Zscaler and, and some zero trust products and moving some of their products to the cloud that, that are started with us. So I'm not always the one doing the innovation and that's not really what I'm here for, but um, at least I'm building a community of like-minded folk and giving them ideas on, on where to go and where to start. We've had some good successes with staying up to date on our perimeter. You know, one of the issues with being a federated environment and even the, C, the CIOs and CISOs and the optives not having full control of, of their IT budget is they don't always know where everything is. And, and certainly at the department level, we don't always know where everything is. So um, the activities from DHS are great. Um, the NCATS scanning and the cyber hygiene scanning is, is a huge, that, that builds a process whereby we are reaching out to the optives and making sure we understand what's out there. DHS is pressuring us to stay up to date on that. But, but it's not, it's a good process, but it, it could be better. And so... Um, we reached out to products like Cadium um, and things like that to try to stay on top of what our perimeter really looks like, make sure we understand what our perimeter really looks like and have a, have a platform by which we can maintain good visibility. So those are, those are all activities. I think they're at Cadium's now expanse. So those are all activities that started with looking at companies when they were small and seeing the value and, launching. Obviously, the success stories are great news, but I think it's even better when you have a less than success story. We won't necessarily yeah. call it a failure because you always learn something. But when you realize something maybe isn't for you or is too early on, um, like the browser isolation, yep. uh, but you learn from it and then you grow from it and you can share those lessons learned, of course, across HHS and other parts. And I was about to bring up DISA about the browser isolation. Great story. And, and I think it's, it's really a, a Again, not the silver bullet that we'll, we all talk about when it comes to cyber, but it's, it's a huge step forward. Well, you know, that, I think the, the piece there for me, and one of the things we learned is, is that laptops and, and the, the local compute, like what we put our fingers on and our hands on every day is really, really personal. And as much as we talk about standardizing, we have an, an immensely varied 
personal compute platform at HHS. Uh, I mean, with NIH and all their scientific community, there's a, a large amount of Apple. With the executives, we have tablets now and all kinds of form factors that essentially on the wire look like um, the same device. But when you begin to put some of this newer technology on, it hasn't been tested. The, the local browser isolation, we just realized there's too much variety at the very end of our network to deploy those kinds of tools if they're heavy at all on the endpoint. And so that's where something like Menlo Security that the, the DISA pushed has, has a much easier answer for us, right? It's, it, it's very light on the desktop, if, if at all. It's all happening in the cloud. Um, those, kinds of, those kinds of platforms um, help HHS get out of our own way, uh, you know, putting things in the cloud, making it shareable and accessible mean that our federation is less of an issue and we can put that on the vendor or the product um, suite or the integrator. We, we can offload that challenge to somebody else. And, and I think that someplace where our failure early on definitely led to us looking or led to me looking at um, that cloud browsing as a, as a solution. So I got to ask, are you guys following down the same path as DISA? Are you looking to pilot either from Menlo or other vendors who are providing similar cloud-based yeah. internet isolation programs? Yeah, so we've got a pilot on, the, on them going right now, at least at, within OS. And, and I think the outcome there will be, you know, report out to the other CISOs and CIOs. I think, you know, COVID came on so fast for us um, that all these kinds of products got elevated, the, the, um, the endpoint protection, uh, because users are now some percentage of the time not fully protected. You know, they, they have their local protections that we deploy, but they don't have the network protections always. And so our answer, at least within the DCIO shop, the OS Office of the Secretary Headquarters shop has been to um, expand the capacity of our existing platforms and escalate some of the um, more user-focused issues. So I think the priority right now has been making sure the workforce can work and then figuring out how to secure those capabilities as opposed to security isn't secondary, but, but we've got to get people working. Uh, and so I think we expedited a lot of the direction we were already going I think we would have taken a slightly slower rollout on Office 365. Our mail was already there. We probably wouldn't have rolled out all the other features as quickly as we did if it weren't for the fact that everybody was working from home. But those kinds of capabilities have been and been key. Uh, obviously, the the web conferencing has been important. And one of the odd things like I mentioned on the other call that I sort of expected to be an issue um, would have been our conference lines. Um, historically, when we all go to work, when we have a snow day, um, it's the conference lines that would fail. They'd get busy and, and we just couldn't have a conference call. Well, that's, that's gone by the wayside. We don't, I mean, I still have a conference call number. I don't use it. Um, but what has happened is our vendors have Zoom, we have WebEx, somebody else has, um, you know, another solution, Ring Central, whatever. But we've gotten very good at pivoting. Um, so if, if one works for somebody or doesn't work, we just shift gears right during the meeting and, and bring up something else. So it's been, it's been interesting, interesting to see that um, even our move to the cloud has been stressed and having multiple options, whether they're ours or our, our partner um, has been really part of the 
continuing operations and part of what we've learned from um, going going virtual. So I think the first issue was getting us connected, getting us working and expanding um, the existing capabilities. But I think a lot of decisions were expedited uh, in that context. I think we've, we've swapped out some endpoint protection pieces. Um, now that it used to be on-prem, they're now cloud-based and that's, that's a huge help. Um, so we know we have connectivity and, and telemetry from, a device, even if it's off net um, or not on the VPN, we have our sharing capabilities now in the cloud. We were we were always um, we had certificates uh, pushed out, derived credentials on our iPhones, <laughs> so we were able to, you know, integrate a lot of um, how we worked already uh, into into being mobile. I can see encrypted email desktop or, or my phone. It's not, not a common problem that some people have, but it's, it's also not a common solution. And, and I don't even, I don't even notice it. So we were in a good position to work remotely. We just didn't quite have it deployed for everybody. And I think for the COVID perspective, that's been the real push early on. Matthew, on that note, let's take a quick break. My guest today is Matthew Schalbetter the Director of Security Design and Innovation at the Department of Health and Human Services. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Matthew Schalbetter, the Director of Security Design and Innovation at the Department of Health and Human Services. I was going to ask you to go down that path around the impact of COVID on HHS from a security perspective, but it seems to me you guys, as you said, dealt with it in, in in very similarly to what I hear from a lot of agencies where they took that sense of urgency to push out new capabilities, kept the security rigor high, but but re-looked at that security rigor in a way that says, well, does that need to be on-prem? Can it be done just as good in the cloud? And then and then you it was easily it was decided very quickly that yes, it can, or let's take the, it's a risk, if you will, that we are wor- we think it's worth taking and try it out. And if it doesn't, then we can shift from there. Is, is that, is that described right in terms of the, the way you guys were thinking back, you know, March, April, and then how are you thinking today to walk me through maybe the shift for today? You know, one of the things we learned is we can move pretty quickly if, if we really have to. And I think it is, was tiresome and exhausting for a lot of people. I, I don't, I think people, um, I, we wouldn't want to move that fast all the time. I just think the hours people worked were just awful at the beginning, but we can do it. And I, but I think you're right. I think the, the concept of risk gets adjusted when you're working in, in a pandemic and emergency and, and you've got external pressures. We had some additional pressures. I mean, obviously being at HHS, we had a lot of a focus on us both in the media and publicly. We also had a lot of focus just from our usual threat actor suspects and Janet likes to call it as a as two denial of service attacks for the price of one. Once it got out in the news that, that we were had been attacked, that brought other people coming of interest. So we <laughs> we really did see an uptick in activity of just people, oh, are they are they still up? And so it caused us to do some things that again expedite some news security controls, push some of that over to partners and the service providers that we would normally do on our side and, and adjust some internal processes and, and, and thresholds for responding. But 
all of the processes were expedited, right? The, the risk review, the financial review, and I would say primarily the expediting of those activities fell on the backs of just people sort of shortcutting the normal business process, not from a review, but just from a timeliness, right? I mean, people were up, had the priority, and were working it uh, on a pace that just, one, isn't really sustainable, but, but it's just what you have to do. And so I think now we've gotten through a lot of the, the, the large, heavy issues. We've got people on. They are working. The help desk um, folks um, have new scripts and new processes on how to support folks. I think it's odd. Some of the business processes that we've struggled with actually got streamlined and, and fixed a little bit during COVID. I think the badging process is, is quicker now because appointments have to be so rigorously scheduled. Those capabilities are put in place. So if you have to go in and get your photo taken, you know the time you're going and you know how to get in there. There's this clean process for getting into the office and getting out. There's some of these some of these pressures have helped improve things in an odd way that, that I found surprising. But, but I think it's mostly because we've gotten there. You know, there was that big extra effort to, to drive these new capabilities out, push these things out um, and get them in place. And, and now that it's working, um, we can sort of sit back and, and start focusing on, on cleaning it up and, and making sure that um, now that it's working, we can focus on where the, the continued gaps are and, and close some you know, s- small specific gaps as opposed to the big connectivity gaps that we were seeing early, early on. All right, Matthew, I'm going to have to ask, you know that. Uh, what, what are some of those gaps? Are you, are you able to give me, even from a broad perspective, some of those gaps? Because a lot of the vendors who do listen to the program will say, we can fill those gaps. So yeah, sure. If you, want, if you want to get ahead of it, <laughs> let me know. And we can try to uh, make your life a little easier to reduce those emails and calls you're going to get. Yeah, so I think obviously a lot of it's around, around maintaining the endpoints, right? So we've gotten some, the business processes have improved, the, the call response rate has improved, people are are happier with the response rate, um, but there's still some things that just you, you can't do. Um, we can't trust that everyone has enough bandwidth to upgrade their, their entire um, office suite. Um, the patching has been fine. You know, there's certain things that are high bandwidth, high touch processes um, that have struggled i think um and it's not any there's no magic to it right it's the basics that we're still trying to solve the the inventory management the software inventory management um, making sure we know who's on the wire and not making sure they have the right patches and and making sure that that software is updated when it needs to be like those those basic activities that we have to handle the patching processes all of those things are are slightly riskier when folks are working from home. And I think that's where we still have some gaps. I'm, I'm sure I'm supposed to be due for a complete overhaul and I just haven't been able to get into the office to get it done. So I think it's that endpoint large scale update that I think are gaps. I, I think some of the other more strategic gaps are fall in the range of the, of the cloud discussion in general, right? We, we have a, when everybody's working from home or only, or when everybody's working in the office or only working from home one day a week, you know, your, your existing capabilities seem perfectly normal. Unless someone's VPNing in, <laughs> they're not getting the additional protections of our firewalls. They're not getting the additional protections of our 
email filtering. And depending on how they connect to the email, they may, they still may not be getting it. So there are some, there are solutions that are there that some of the optics have taken to streamline, say our mail flow to, um, deploy, um, sort of next gen VPN solutions that are cloud-based work towards zero trust solutions that, that deliver services, um, from endpoint to endpoint that, I think that's where we're we're going to be going. I think the zero trust, the tick three at O migration, uh, and that was one thing that did expedite our, our as part of COVID. We began we expedited the process of moving from you know on prem tick to M tip solutions, and that's that's great. <laughs> but that's still sort of tick two dot O for us. So you know the zero trust software defined networking tick three O discussions. Um, I think are going to really drive the next round of, of changes. And I mean, if I had any, if I had more input into it, I would have instead said, why are we expanding VPN? Let's change how we do this. But, you know, frankly, sometimes you just got to expand what you have. So I think those are the kinds of gaps we're seeing. If we have a hard time maintaining a, a good proper um, inventory within our platform, trying to figure out where we are on the cloud is, is also equally difficult um, and maybe more so difficult, more so than, than internal because often those solutions aren't even, um, like we can't go ask the procurement <laughs> office, where's all our Amazon spend? Where's all our Zer spend? Because it's hidden often in some contract somewhere. So it's, it, it requires the perimeter scanning. It requires the internal connections. It requires the discussions inside. And it's just not a, it's, it's not an easy solution that we have tackled. So I think those are the gaps that we're hitting. And while operating divisions and programs are solving it for themselves, we're still struggling as a department to roll all those together. Uh, and that's, that's just our perennial challenge. Just now that now that everybody is our network perimeter is blown up, um, it makes that challenge even harder. So, if we had everybody coming through one cloud gateway and and could just collect all that inventory right there, wouldn't that be amazing? I don't I don't foresee it, but that <laughs> that would be amazing. So I know HHS in years past, and you forgive me if I'm remembering this incorrectly, they did not have mtips they did it themselves when yes. it came to tick 2.0 so yep. you guys actually moved to an mtips provider yep yep and, and we, we're in the process of making that migration right now um we've we've swung over we've swung back and i think we're we got some kinks worked out but you know we we've, we've had three different tick points of presence um and we've been in the process of migrating those over to a, a mtips provider and as far as tick 3.0, which I know DHS put out an early use case and, and sure. some, some framework and some guidelines to, to deal with the cloud issue. Have you guys been experimenting with testing it out in any way? Are you guys part of that group that are saying, okay, let's, let's give some of the concepts around 3.0 a try in, in, in that migration? Because I said, I know you mentioned we're doing some 2.0 migration, but are you doing any 3.0? I'd say at this point, we're really, we're investigating Obviously, there's a lot around the TIC 3.0 and Zero Trust um, discussion. I think those are really, in all honesty, I think they're the same discussion. Um, if you were to look at Gartner's assessment of Zero Trust and, and their sassy edge discussion, uh, it, it is TIC 3.0. Like, we cannot deploy that kind of connectivity 
without providing DHS the log information they need. So for any federal government, a move to tick 3.0 is really a move to zero trust. So it, and it has implications on the way we collect logs from the operating divisions, the, the, the way we do our transport. It has, has um, issues on how we identify users and services. I mean, it's just, there's a, it is a complicated effort um, and, and it's likely to have, you know, a significant impact on bottom line and budget and, and just how we do these activities. So I think we're going pretty slowly. I think this MTIPS move is the, is the first move there. And I would expect us to pivot from that initially. So I'd say we are, we are active in participating in the discussions, but I would, I would foresee some of the operating divisions in conjunction with us sort of moving into that place first. So I would see various pockets of, of that solution. I would not expect us to have a comprehensive tick 3.0 or zero trust solution in place from a services perspective. I think, you know, our typical role at the department is, is awareness and monitoring. So, uh, log aggregation and, and sort of the, the incident response activities that we have typically um, centralized from a reporting perspective and, and, and tracking perspective, I would see us try to pivot those into a, um, a broader service capability. It's, it's again, it's a, it's, an, it's a function of where services are actually being delivered and how they're being delivered that, that challenge us. Matthew, on that note, let's take a quick break. My guest today is Matthew Schalbetter, the Director of Security Design and Innovation at the Department of Health and Human Services. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Matthew Schalbetter, the Director of Security Design and Innovation at the Department of Health and Human Services. I was going to bring up Zero Trust because you mentioned it a couple times, and it sounds to me like from a headquarters level, you guys aren't quite there yet, but some of the operating divisions are there, but you're, you're paying close attention to what they're doing. And of course, as you guys talk about it at the CISO council meetings or the CIO council meetings across HHS, I'm sure that, that gets brought up and shared. It, it, walk me through where you guys are at with zero trust. And again, is it what, what I described it where it's happening maybe at a CDC or at an FDA, and then it will potentially be expanded across more uh, of the operating divisions? Zero trust is sort of following the blockchain path, right? It, it, it was a magic phrase. It still has a little bit of a magic phrase. I think people have you know, for the blockchain metaphor, I think people have sort of understood now what it can and can't do. And and so it's sort of lost its sheen. We know we know how to use it as a tool and great. We don't have to be focusing on it. I think Zero Trust still has, it's a little more marketing still than, than it is reality. And there's so many different ways to to implement it. And it it really is more about mature business processes, mature data business processes than it is about, you know, the technology. Um, although I think there are some, some deployment models that do kind of shift things significantly. So I, I don't even know if I would say that we are there. I think our, our Palo Alto deployment early on had some zero trusty things to it. Like one of the things we wanted to do was 
shift from IP-based rules to, to user-based rules. And, and for us, that became possible in some pockets by using Palo's integration with the identity store. And, and that was an important shift because we were able to have people have access to services, whether they were on wireless, whether they were at home over the VPN, or whether they were whether in the office. And typically that would take three or four different rules to stitch all that together behind the scenes. We could just say, one and done, and actually we could offload that to the desktop group, which made more sense, right? Just put them in this group, and then they'll have access no matter where they are, and the firewall will figure it out. So those kinds of things just simplify business process and, and, and make the relationships between you know, the folks who manage the users and the folks who manage network traffic just easier because it, it helps them stay within their lane, which just improves security because the folks who know are the folks that are doing um, instead of having to sort of stitch it all together. And I think Zero Trust is really a, in a large part trying to simplify all those issues. But I mean, even my example describes some of the challenge is, which is just maintaining the list of the services and who they are and, and those business processes around that. So that's the underlying challenge of, of that model, which is why I think most of the, the zero trust use cases that people talk about are, are something like the VPN replacement, right? Cause you kind of know who's connecting, you know, you know what they need to get access to and, and you can replace that capability pretty cleanly. As you try to roll that up to a department level, we would have some some challenges. So, and primarily, it's not the technology. It's it's going to be managing the users and managing the services and keeping those things aligned. And that's that's the real challenge to me of zero trust. So, I know there's been some deployments. Um, I mentioned CDC and Zscaler. I think, but that was a very again a very specific use case connecting um, remote you know inspections systems back into the department securely. So it, it, it never, um, without having to stand up a bunch of infrastructure, um, you know, Zscaler was tailor-made for, I have a deployment of infrastructure over here, or I have a service over here, connect them together so nobody can see them. Perfect. Um, and there's a lot of vendors that can do that. That model is, is becoming more prevalent and, and is one of the, the, probably the simpler to deploy if you have a good understanding of who's connecting and where they're going. And that is one of the challenges. So I, I would I would expect us to see the optives coming first with specific solutions and the department trying to help facilitate that and, and hopefully save money, try to align us to certain common capabilities and common platforms. I think that would be our role. But the, but the missions are, are so, um, uh, so specific that, that we could never uh, get in front of all of them. I enjoyed your discussion about a little bit about Zero Trust is uh, lost maybe some of its sheen. It's, uh, <laughs> it's a, maybe it was a magic phrase. Yeah, we, we see that all the time with vendors and got to move to Zero Trust. And then everyone picks it up in the conference community. And all of a sudden there's 801 Zero Trust panels and, and <laughs> yeah. what's interesting to me is when you connect all the dots that have been going on with agency cyber efforts, they all kind of come back around to this concept of zero trust. And, and I want to bring up the continuous diagnostics and mitigation program, CDM. How are you involved in that? Because a lot of the challenges you talked about earlier seem to be something that CDM is trying to help you or other agencies overcome. 
Oh, absolutely. I, I mean, I think the, the, the concepts of CDM are critical. And I think completing those initiatives is one of Janet's priorities. But I've been here for 10 years. And I, I, I think I remember the, the first thing we would say, it was Jaron Doherty at the time, the CISO at HHS. And we said to him, you know, you can't secure what you, what you don't know about, right? And that's the same, that's just the same place CDM has started. It's the same place we all start. Like what's on the network? And what is it running? And is it configured the way we think? It, it, it's critical. Like that, and who's on the network? Th- those questions are critical to any kind of security planning and any kind of, any kind of prioritization. Any, you just got to know what's there. And so finishing that is, is really, really important. It's challenging in a federated environment because you have to align with their own priorities. And, and when you start picking winners and products, it becomes, you know, it becomes a challenge to get everybody on board. And so, you know, we've got a solution in place. We're driving at it, but clearly the big fix sailed to India through some hinks in there, application whitelisting through some hinks in there. I mean, just, it's a, it's, it's a problem of an agency our size and in the group we're in to have a deployment span uh, fiscal years because technology changes so fast and a lot of these capabilities that CDM was trying to put in were baseline capabilities that people already had solutions for. In some cases, the CDM solution, solution was perfectly tailored. It fit with what we were doing. In some cases, it didn't. And where it didn't, you know, that kind of pushback um, takes time to, uh, to answer. So I, I think we are continuing to push at that as a priority. I, I think people are feeling a little more open to push back on the push back on the the selection, the product selection, and say, I can get you that data in a different different and simpler way. That's okay. But it, it's a challenge just in a in a big federated environment just to move that kind of information. I think that's one of the things that DHS recognized as they yes. were moving into this next phase. And I know they don't like to use phases anymore that, wait a minute, if you already have this capability, why should I switch out capability one for capability two when they were basically the same one? That must have changed and made things a little easier on your end because they looked at what's the outcome we're trying to achieve versus what's the path by which we're trying to achieve that outcome. I mean, yes. Yes. Yeah. No. And I think we were a very loud voice in that discussion to push that way forward. Now, the other side of that story is, you know, standardization is important. There's a reason you want to try to standardize at some level, just because it, it makes the integration and the roll-up easier. But at some point, it's always going to be a business decision. Matthew, this has been a fascinating conversation. It sounds like we could probably talk longer, but I have kept you. Uh, uh, but unfortunately, we're out of time. So let me let me first thank my guest. Matthew Schalbetter is the HHS Director of Security Design and Innovation. Matthew, thank you so much for taking the time today. Yeah, Jason, thank you. I'm Jason Miller, and you've been listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. You've been listening to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Network. Tune in Thursday mornings at 10 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One. Here are three good reasons to rent a Peloton bike or Bike Plus. That's right, rent. One. 
Just one low monthly fee gives you access to thousands of classes. Two, pay month to month with zero commitment. Three, it's easier to stick to a fitness routine when you enjoy it. No wonder our research in March 2022 found that 70% of Peloton members work out more than they did before joining. Learn more about renting at OnePeloton.com. Peloton, motivation that moves you. Only available within the eligible delivery radius. Terms apply.